0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of Luke. Now, I know most of the time I like to camp out in one or two places. But today, we're going we're gonna to draw from a few different places in the Scripture because I want you to see something about the birth of Jesus and about the advent of Jesus and about the importance of what the prophets have been speaking about. You know that Jesus came and fulfilled every prophecy that had been given about the Messiah. Even ones that they didn't know were prophecies until he lived it out. There were so many times that they said, oh, this is what the prophets were talking about. So many times they had no clue. And in Luke, you see some things start to stir even before Jesus is born. Now, you know, before Jesus is born, the angels appear. There's an angel. Gabriel appears to uh, Mary. He appears to Joseph as well. We know that uh, there is uh, an anticipation there. But even before um, the birth of Jesus, not just Mary and Joseph, but God is appearing to men like Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. And I love what John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, says when John is born. You know, when, when when you have a baby boy born, it's kind of all about that boy, especially when he's your only kid, when he's your only child, everything is about that boy. You know, I, when we had our son, I just thought, I, I, I thought, I don't know how you guys can just keep on, I don't know how people can keep driving down the street like nothing's happened. Moses has been born, like... And I, I was just amazed. I, I thought, you know, this is, this is the news for the world. Moses has been born. I don't know why we we're still going to work. We should be taking a day off here. It becomes all about that. But as Zacharias, the first words that come out of his mouth, he's been mute for nine months. The first words that come out of his mouth are a prophecy about this boy. Thank God. If you're going to start with something, might as well be that. God opens his tongue. Well, actually, his first words are, his name is John, agreeing with what God had said, you will name him John. And then he began to prophesy. And I want to read that prophecy. We're going to read what Simeon says when he holds baby Jesus. We're going to read what the prophet Isaiah said. And I want you to see something that develops here, that they're all saying the same thing. When God says something more than once, it's either that it's more important than we realized or we're not listening to it like we think we're listening to it. God says the same thing over and over again. Because this is the hinge point of history. And in Matthew, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 1, as John is born, in verse 67, it says, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Then he turns and he looks at his son, John. I mean, he he doesn't know the significance of what's happening. He knows something's big. But right now, he's opening his mouth and God's giving him the words. Can you imagine? He looks at John and he says, You child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise. Now, I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, sunrise is capitalized. Because the sunrise here is not an event. It is a person. The sunrise is not a moment. It is Jesus. He says the sunrise from on high will visit us. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. And I want you to hear that. What a beautiful, beautiful statement. But a powerful statement. He says, you child, you're going to be the prophet of the most high. Then he, as as important as his baby boy is, this isn't about John. This is about Jesus. And he says, this sunrise from on high will visit us. Think about that. It'll visit us, and it will shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. You know, it's so easy for us to often think about God visiting those who are in a room full of light, that he comes because he likes light, and he wants to be amongst people of light, and that's true. But the Bible tells us very clearly that where there is darkness, it's because there's no light. Come on, you know, you can't go to, I've said this before, but you can't go to Walmart and buy your grandkid for Christmas a little flash dark so he can go and shine a beam of darkness around a bright room. It doesn't work, does it? Why? Because darkness is nothing more than the absence of light. Darkness is not, is, is not able to dispel light, but light dispels darkness. So a place that's dark, you got to ask, why is it dark? There are regions of the world that are dark, and I'm not talking about light. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm talking about spiritually dark, and the reason they're dark is because there's no light. Now, I know that sounds real simple. That sounds like something your three-year-old would come up with, but it is that simple. Often we say, well, all right, let's, let's, let's pray about the darkness. Let's pray against the darkness, and, and there is power in that. But you know as well as I do that half the time when you pray that, God says, okay, you said amen, time to go. I'm sending you into the darkness. Bring the light into the dark place. So he says, sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness, to shine upon those who sit sit in the shadow of death. Got to watch my words there. And shine in that dark place. I want you to think about that. Think about it for a minute. Those that are sitting in death, the shadow of death, that's a depressed place. Darkness, death, this is not a good place. It's not where you want to be. It's a place where you might think that God has abandoned you. It's a place where you think, surely God's not going to visit you. Surely God's not going to have anything to do with you. You might think that, first of all, he's going to go to the places where they've already got it set up. They've already got their church set up. They've already got the, 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 the nice civilization where God can just step in and feel right at home. But Jesus didn't come to those places. And he didn't come at that time. If you look at the Old Testament prophecies, it talks about God. I, I love where it says, that when God looked about and saw there was no justice. And he saw that there was nobody to stand up and nobody to fight. He himself raised up his right hand, took up his shield, took up his sword, and he went to battle. That God was looking for the time in history, not when things were the best, but when things were the worst. That's when he came. Now look ahead to the next chapter, and you see Simeon. Simeon was a godly man. Simeon was a man who was looking for the Messiah. And as he's looking, he's going to find something. He's a man who's expected the salvation of God for years and years and years. I imagine from a young man, from a time of, very, of his youth, he's expecting that, that God will send a Messiah. And God tells him at some point in his life, you're not going to die until you see my salvation. So this guy is just waiting. The Bible says he's righteous, he's devout, and he's looking. See, those are the kind of people we want to be. Righteous, devout looking. For everything that we say, we believe. every time we say, oh, you know, the Lord said, this is what he's going to do. The Lord said, this is what he's going to accomplish. The Lord said, he's coming back soon. And we'll say we believe it to everyone around. But you know, the Jews in Jerusalem said the Messiah is coming. They all said it a million times. They all said they believed it. They all knew all the facts about it. But when in reality, Messiah comes and stands in front of them, they don't recognize it because they're not expecting it. But there's an old man named Simeon who's living in Jerusalem, and he's waiting for salvation. He's waiting for God's deliverance. And says so he's righteous, he's devout, he's looking for the consolation of Israel. And then when he finally sees Jesus, he recognizes him. I've said this before, but how many people saw a a little baby in the temple, just saw a simple little baby and said, oh, what a cute baby, or oh, I wish that baby would stop crying, but a man named Simeon sees the Messiah. You see, often we think, we think, well, God seems to visit those people a lot. God seems to visit those people a lot. God seems to show up in their life a lot. Why didn't he ever do it in my life? Truth of the matter is, it's most of the time, it's not that God has not shown up. It's not that God has not spoken. But your eyes have been closed. Your ears have been closed. You didn't recognize he was there. Jesus visited how many people that day? How many people were at the temple and saw Jesus? But they didn't know. But Simeon does and he prophesies. And here's what he says. He says in verse 29 of chapter 2, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation which you've prepared in the presence of all people a light of revelation to the gentiles and the glory of your people Israel a light of revelation you don't have to turn there but i want to read you something from matthew that happened later when jesus began his ministry at the very beginning of his ministry the very beginning He's he's just been baptized. He's gone out to the wilderness. He's been tempted by the devil. And he comes back, and he's from Nazareth, but he goes and settles in Capernaum, which is in Galilee, which is the ghetto, which is not the nice part of Judea. Jesus, why don't you live in the nice part? Why don't you live at least in a nice little country? He goes to the ghetto. He goes to Galilee. You remember what some of them said. Can anything good come from Galilee? Can anything good come from Nazareth for that matter? You know, when it says that uh, when Peter was, uh, he was, he was noticed because people noticed, hey, this guy's, this guy's one of the disciples. What they noticed was his thick Galilean accent. When, Peter and John stood up and and preached in the book of Acts in chapter three and four. When they they preached, people recognized they were from Galilee because they had a country accent. They had a hick accent. They had the Galilean brogue. They had that that grating, oh man, you're from Galilee. It was not the nice place. There was a lot of poverty in Galilee at the time. Imagine there was a, a... an attitude. If 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 the prophet said that God was coming to a people who were sitting in the shadow of death, who were in great darkness. Do you know there's a difference between darkness and great darkness? Can you imagine the Israelites have have been through captivity? They've been th- they've come back from Babylon. They've come back from Persia, and then. You have the Seleucids come, and they come, and they, they, they take over. These are the descendants of, of Alexander. They come, they take over, and they persecute the Jews, men like Antiochus Epiphanes. They, Antiochus took a pig and sacrificed him in the temple. The things that they did was horrible. And finally, the Jews rose up, the Maccabees rose up, and they pushed these invaders out, and they pushed them out, and they stood up for what was right. They stood up for their nation. And they won. That's why we celebrate Hanukkah. There's a there was a time where where the the oil they were under siege and the oil was gonna run out in the menorah and God caused the oil to keep burning for those eight days that they did not run out. So it's a wonderful time in history. But then imagine, you know, sometimes that first time that you you really fight the good fight, the first time you have to win a victory, you stand and you believe. And no matter what's happening, you're standing. And when you win, you feel like you're on top of the world. But you know what's harder is when you experience that victory and then something comes and hits you in the same spot. And fighting the second time is a lot harder than fighting the first time. I think about those Jews that had been under the thumb of the Seleucids or Seleucids if you want to pronounce it that way. They get free. Then what happens? The Romans come along, stick their thumb on them. Nobody tries to overthrow the Romans until 70 AD and it fails miserably. But even before that, there's a feeling of depression, of discouragement. This is when Jesus decides to come. His timing is impeccable. Here's what happens. When Jesus comes out of the wilderness, he settles. In Matthew chapter 4, it tells us this. It tells us that he comes out of the wilderness. And in verse 12, it says, When Jesus had heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the Isaiah, the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them, a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is right here. Now, I want to read you from Isaiah 9, this prophecy that this comes from. When Isaiah prophesied this, nobody had a clue he was talking about hundreds of years in the future, talking about a little baby born hundreds of years later in Bethlehem. These people had no idea about that. They thought he was talking about current events. But in Isaiah chapter 9, and maybe you read this with your family on Christmas morning. We always did when I was growing up. There is a great prophecy about a Messiah to come. Isaiah 9, 1 says, but there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. Hear that. There is a land that God seems to be ignoring. Seems they want nothing to do with. But later on, he shall make it glorious. Now, I not have time to go into it today. We, we're going to read one more verse after this. But uh, you really see in the scripture that glory and light go together. That his glory illuminates dark places. It breaks through bondage. It, it, it really changes the atmosphere. And so there is a land that nobody wants anything to do with. And certainly not God And it says, he will make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. They will rejoice as with gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of the burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and every cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. So here they're thinking, he's talking about, even even his disciples thought, that This is talking about the oppressors, the Romans, the Greeks, whoever's in charge at the time. But in reality, he's talking about a much greater oppressor, a much greater burden. Forget the Romans. See, the Romans can be in charge of government, but who's in charge of your soul? The Romans can be in charge of government, but they can't change you. But the burden on them was a burden of sin. They were in captivity to the devil himself. And here's what he says. He will break He'll break the yoke, he'll break the bondage, he will break the staff, and every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and a cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. In verse 6, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. I just want to stay there for a minute. Have you ever read that really slow? You know, because we hear these verses so many times. You kind of glaze over it. Ever really just sat and thought about that? A son will be given, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. That God himself, full of majesty and glory, the creator of the universe, the creator of you, would not just say a child child will be born You guys better get your act in line. You better get yourself in shape. You guys better stop messing around, bow down, and worship this kid. I mean, certainly we were called to worship him. In fact, even from the very first days of his arrival on the planet, people worshiped him. And that was right. But do you see how much God loved you that he says, a son will be given to us. A child will be born to us. He gave himself to you. And then it says this, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace or of the throne of David or of his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from now on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Go back. He's already prophesied. The scriptures told us where Jesus was going to be born. Even the stupid religious leaders at the time, when when the wise men come, when the Magi come to Jerusalem, and they say, hey, where's the the king going to be born? Even the the scribes at the time, even though they were too thick-headed not to go check it out for themselves, they at least knew the right place. They said, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They knew he was going to be born in Bethlehem. The prophet said not only was he going to be born in Bethlehem, but he's going to move to Galilee. Can you imagine hundreds of years before God has already laid out what Jesus was going to do? But one of the things it says at the very beginning is that he will, a great light in this dark place, in this place full of death, in this place full of despair, a great light will shine on them. Light from on high will shine on them. Now, Galilee, the area that they're in, is not only a region of very poor Jews. It's also a region where there's a lot of Gentiles around too. And even though Jesus didn't come first to the Gentiles because he said he came first to the house of Israel, even that he was fulfilling prophecy in that he was a light to the Gentiles. I know you're saying, well, that's cool. and That's wonderful. And I I knew that. Maybe you're learning something. But how does this apply to you right now? The church is the body of Christ. We've been called in the same way Jesus was called, to bring light into the very darkest of places, the very pits of despair, the places that are bound by death. And you know what? The places that are full of death and darkness, they're not really places for good Christians to go. That's the problem. Now, I'm not telling you to go into a bar and say I'm ministering to people in the bar. You know what? They have to come out of the bar at some point. You can stand outside there and wait for them. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm not telling you go in the brothel and say, I'm starting a ministry to prostitutes. I'll pay him for two hours. That's not what I'm telling you to do. Please do not go out here and say, that's what he's telling us to do. Go into the dark places. There are dark places all over this place. And God's called you to these places and to these people that he loved very much. And most of the time, they're not comfortable places. And most of the time, they're places where you might get a bit of criticism for even associating with these people. But Jesus did not just come and appear in the sky to us like the great giant head talking to us, like in the Wizard of Oz or something, just standing up there speaking commandments to us. He became one of us. He lived among us. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is that while he became one of us, he was always something that we looked at and said, he's, of, he's in this world, but he's not of this world. That Jesus walked the planet showing them the Father. Isn't that amazing? He became one of them. He ate their food. He sang their songs. And yet at the same time, you could tell he's one of us, but he's not one of us. This is the tension of being a Christian in a dark place. You can tell you're one of us because if we go out and we buy special clothes and wear special cologne and eat special food that nobody eats and we say we're going to separate ourselves from you guys because you're dirty and you're filthy and you're dark, then the dark will get darker and the light won't pierce the darkness. What do we do? We, As Paul said to the Greeks, I become a Greek. To the Jew, I become a Jew. So that by any means, I might win some. We go out. We take on the cloak of humanity. We are, we are just like Jesus as this incarnation of God in this dead place. We go out, we bring the light of the gospel, but you're always going to be different because if you're not different, you're not changing anything. Jesus said, if you lose your saltiness, what good are you? See, if you taste like the rest of the meat, you're not affecting the meat. You've got to be salty just like him. He goes on, and I want to read you something from the book of 2 Corinthians In verse 1, 2 Corinthians, sorry, I didn't tell you what chapter. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 4 is brilliant. 5 2, man, I just, I could camp out on those two chapters for a year. But I want you to hear something. The Apostle Paul writes this probably not the best time in his ministry. There's a lot of Opposition. There was a lot of things he had to go through. If you went on and read, you'd find out that he, did a, he, he endured a lot to get the gospel of these people. But I want you to hear what he says in verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame. We are not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, manifestation means to uncover, to reveal. The revealing of truth. You don't have to make truth up. You don't have to come up with truth. You just have to be God's vessel to uncover what he's already revealed. The manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, hear that. Jesus, Jesus is the light of the world. The Bible says the gospel is light. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So the very glory of God is shining through Jesus. And the way to see and to demonstrate and to manifest the glory of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is the light. So this is the deal, this is the cool thing, is he says, when we preach the gospel, we are are proclaiming, we are shooting light into dark places. People are seeing the glory of God through Jesus, who is the image of God. Then it says in verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, thank God, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. It literally says in the Greek, ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Then he says, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. When did God say that? Come on, when did God first say light will shine out of darkness? The very beginning, right? Light be, boom. What happened when he said that? Did he have to preach an hour and a half sermon to light and say, you know, I really want to convince you that it's a good idea for you to start shining. Let me give you 10 points of why this is important. I need to convince you because you're stubborn, light. You're stubborn. No, when he said light be, light responded to the voice of God and it was. It's the same way. Have you realized that if we don't preach ourselves, if we preach Jesus, if we preach the word of God, you're not preaching your word, you're preaching his word. His word creates things. I want to give you this good news. Because so many of you, not, not you, 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 we're talking to the podcast people right now, don't worry. Podcast people, let it, just, you feel holy right now, you feel, you feel clean and, and holy, and let the podcast people fall on their knees in repentance. But so many of us have thought, I don't know where they came from. I don't know what they're going through. I've not been through what they're going through. So how can I talk to them? How can I preach to them? How can I have anything of of worth to give to them? You know, if you came out of a drug background, God's going to use you to go back to those same people you came from and preach the gospel. But can I also tell you, some of you, if you didn't come out of a drug background, doesn't mean you can't preach the gospel to these people. Right? Did Jesus have to become demon-possessed to minister deliverance to demon-possessed people? Did he have to become a leper to heal the lepers? No, he didn't. But you know what? He embraced them. He loved them. He ate with them. He delivered them. So many of us think, well, what do I have to say? Well, that's the point, isn't it? You don't have anything to say. It's not what you have to say. So what what does God have to say to these people? And how would he like to use me? Because if you speak what God says to speak, here's the good news. When you speak, things break, things happen, things come alive, things wake up. When God spoke, creation started. When you speak the word of God, and I think it'd be wise for us to stop trying so hard to win an argument. Because what does he say? We've abandoned craftiness. We've abandoned manipulation. The gospel is not manipulation. If your method of getting people to pray with you at the end of the the conversation is to manipulate them into an argument where they can't say you're wrong, I think you're doing it wrong. Because even if they lose the argument and they say, I'll pray with you just so you'll leave me alone... Without faith, how can they be saved? Faith doesn't come from here, from being beaten down intellectually. Faith comes from the spirit. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you preach the word of God and God does what you couldn't do. You spend that hour drive to see your family on Christmas. And instead of, like I've said before, instead of thinking for the whole hour, what am I going to say to Uncle Tom? Every time I talk to Uncle Tom, he's got the argument, I got the perfect argument for Uncle Tom this time. (laughs) You know, instead (laughs) of doing that, why don't you just pray? God, give me the words to say to Uncle Tom. I know you love Uncle Tom. I know you died for Uncle Tom. I know you love him more than I love him. I know that you want him to come to repentance just like you want everybody to. So Lord, speak through me and love through me and let your light shine. Because look, it says, when God spoke, light, shine out of darkness. That same God is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory of God. I mean, to to the degree that if you saw the glory of God in the Old Testament, like he's talking about here, you would have dropped dead. The glory of God that even though Moses saw his goodness, his glory, he was only able to glimpse the trail that God left behind as he was hidden behind the cleft of the rock. That glory was fully manifested in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says the glory of God is reflected in the face of Jesus. And how does the world experience the glory of God? Do do we have to... um, do we have to sneakily sneak into wherever they are, the mall, or wherever, and set up speakers where they can't see, and get the keyboardist to play warm pads, and get somebody chaga, 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 to play some drums, and then get the best guitar player in the world, not me, somebody else, obviously, and, and start to play blah, 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 and then, you know, and, and then, oh, we're working up the presence of God. We're working up the presence of God. Does that have to happen every time? No. no. If you haven't noticed, Jesus didn't have a band traveling with him. <laughs> I think music, music is great. I love worshiping God with music, obviously. But sometimes we think, oh, well, we'll bring him to church because that's where the presence of God is. The presence of God should be at church. But it also should go with you wherever you go. You think you got to bring people to the room. Because when they get into the room, oh, there'll be the music. And there'll be the ushers. And you know, the ushers just greet them. Oh, already there's anointing. Oh, yeah. And there'll be a bunch of other people. Hey, bring them to church. But you don't have to bring them to church for them to see the glory of God. Because the glory of God doesn't live in a building. It lives in you. And it's reflected in the face of Christ. So, good news is this. Jesus Brought the light to the very darkest. The very most full of despair. The deadest place is where he brings the light. Where do you figure he wants to send you? And we know that darkness is not always as obvious as we think it is. There are people living in mansions right now. With everything they think they need. And there's great darkness. There are people living in gutters right now. And there's great darkness. It's not defined by your economic position. It's not defined by outward circumstances or what they look like. What's defined by spiritual darkness is really blindness. It's not, it has no light of God. Matthew said that Jesus was, going, Jesus was a light of revelation. Or sorry, Simeon said a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Revelation means to reveal. To uncover. What what is Jesus uncovering? He's revealing God. Darkness is dark because people don't know God. I know that sounds simple, but it is simple. Dark places are not dark because they sat around and said, I hate light, let's just get as dark as we can. Darkness is dark because they don't know God. And the God that they think they know has been presented so full of religion and tradition that it's been stripped of its power. The Bible calls it a form of godliness which denies the power. Yeah. A form of godliness is like getting inoculated for the flu. Or you have just enough of something so that you don't catch something. Some people have just enough religion that they don't really seek or hunger for God. But mm-hmm. well, I got good news for you. You don't have to go into a dark place and convince them to let light in. You can go into a dark place and preach the gospel and show the gospel. And watch how God, the same God that said, Light be, and it was, uses you. Because that same God shines his light into your heart to show the glory of God in the face of Christ. When we celebrate this season, we are celebrating light coming into darkness. It's like the worst time in history to the worst region. Jesus comes, and he sets up camp there. And I love to see what happens when he sets up camp in Galilee. Not only are people healed, but you watch. There was such demonic oppression over that region that, that everywhere he goes, people are having demons cast out of them. When he crosses the sea, uh, this man who's full of demons falls at his feet and the head guy, the head evil spirit speaks up and goes, what are you doing here? What business do we have with one another? Have you come to torment us before the time? Do you see they were so territorial and so worried? This is our space. Get out of our space. That they asked Jesus, what are you doing here? Have you come to mess with us before the time? We thought we had more time. Jesus talked about, he said, when I come into this place, it's like a man, I tie up the strong man, I, I tie up the, these spirits, I bind them, and then I can preach. And I think about that when I think about you. God may very well send you to the nicest people in the world. Good for you. Because the nicest people in the world without Jesus are still lost. But he may also send you To the land of darkness and the shadow of death. And you've got everything you need to shine light. We must become like our Savior. Who came separate. Obviously different, but became one of them. To the Jews become a Jew, to the Greek become a Greek. You don't have to partake in the deeds of darkness. Ephesians 5 says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Well, what exposes them? Light Mm -hmm. exposes darkness. That same chapter in Ephesians says, you are light. Mm -hmm. I love that because it doesn't say you have light. It doesn't say you know light. It says you are light. Therefore, walk as children of light. This is what we have this is why we're getting together and encouraging each other with the word today, because you gotta realize just because you are something doesn't mean you're walking as something. You have to first know who you are in Christ. Right? I know if I know I'm righteous, I can start living righteously because I know he's made me righteous by his blood. If I know I'm light, walk as children of light. You know, and I love that because sometimes we think, well, children of light, we should hang out with other children of light. We should, we should start a big light, light colony over here, and we're just light, 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 and we will be the city on a hill. And thank God for the city on a hill. That's what we are. But he also says, I've called you to be salt and light in the place that needs salt and light. So we can all gather together and have a nice big light party, and that's wonderful. But you remember on the day of Pentecost, they got up in the upper room. They had a great prayer meeting, but the prayer meeting will always spill out into the streets. What God does in the upper room has got to, at some point, spill out into the streets of the same city that killed Jesus. What God does in this place, what God does in your home, is precious. It's valuable. What God does when you're around other believers, because that's your life. You hang out with these people, you'll grow. But it's always going to spill into the world. You have to love the people who are in darkness like Jesus loved them. Jesus never loved the darkness, but he loved the people in darkness. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, He said those those famous words that you probably heard before you were ever born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's wonderful. You know, in 1 John, he says, don't love the world, nor the things in the world. If a person loves the world, they do not have the love of the Father in them. So how do you reconcile that? God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. Then he says, don't love the world. And when I first looked at it, I thought, I've told you this before, but I thought the Greek will surely save me. It's probably a different word for love. Nope, same word. Oh, I know, it's a different word for world. Nope, same word. But I'll tell you the difference. Jesus loved the people in the world, but he never became part of the system. God has called you to the people of the world and to love them with the same love he loved, but you don't fall in love with the system of the world. Don't fall in love with mammon. Don't fall in love with the, with the way the world's trying to sell you on this. Don't fall in love with the same things the world's in love with. Love the Father. Love the Son. Love Him and let His love be in you. And that's the only way that light will pierce darkness. But I'm telling you, Lloyd Minster may look at sometimes, like it may look like the land that's in darkness. It may look like people are sitting in the shadow of death. That's why Jesus has sent His body to shine light, that a great dawn, a great sunset from on high would visit them. That is the message of Christmas. God became one of us, Emmanuel. And I want you to know the same Emmanuel that is with you is in you. That same God with us is going to use you to be God with someone else. You're not God, but you have his spirit inside of you you have his light, you have his word. God is reaching our city, our region through people like you saying, God, I don't have a thing to say, but the same God that said light be, light shine in darkness is shining into my heart to show the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's good news, isn't it? Amen. Stand up with me today.